judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Please be seated. special away sessions. We didn't get to have these for a couple of years, so it's very exciting to be back here uh, to see everyone in person. Uh, your panel today uh, for the, well, we, I, you've actually got an extra bonus today, okay? We have two cases for argument, and on the first case, uh, your panel, which will be me, um, Chief Judge Stroud, uh, Judge um, John Tyson, to my right, and Judge Toby Hampson to my left. Uh, we are all Campbell Law School uh, judges. And uh, for our second case, um, actually our panel is gonna switch. So we're gonna take a recess between the two cases uh, to switch out the panels and Judge Carpenter is gonna join the panel. Uh, also a Campbell judge. So you get four Campbell judges today at Campbell. Uh, we had a change in the, um, the schedule. We had, had we generally try to have two cases on our calendar for the law school sessions, uh, criminal and a civil. And uh, the, our second case uh, very recently settled, which is great. Uh, but then we also had to uh, find another case. So we really appreciate the attorneys uh, in the second case um, agreeing to have the argument today. Uh, that worked out very nicely for uh, the court and for the students at Campbell, because uh, it's also a very interesting case that I think they will really enjoy hearing. So, um, and then um, after, since we do have the two panels, one of the things we normally do after uh, arguments is take a little bit of time to answer questions or whatever from students. Um, of course, not about the cases, but about other stuff about the court or whatever. Uh, so we will do that after the second case. Um, and I'm assuming all four of the judges will participate, but anyway, but we'll do it after the second case. So, all right. So it looks like we are ready to proceed with the first case, uh, State v. Ambrose. And I'm sorry we don't have the little timer lights here at this courtroom, um, but um, we will be trying to keep up with the time. And, yep, all right. Thank you, good afternoon. May it please the court. I'm Kathy Vandenberg with the Appellate Defender's Office. I'm here today on behalf of Mr. Ombrice, and I'd like to save 10 minutes for rebuttal. The state did not offer substantial evidence that Mr. Ombrice planned aided or encouraged this drug deal. And the state violated Mr. Ambrose's constitutional right to a speedy trial under the factors set out in Barber. For both of these reasons, the law requires that his convictions be vacated. I'd like to spend a few minutes on sufficiency and then um, switch over to the speedy trial. Substantial evidence exists if a rational trier of fact could have found the essential elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. That's from State versus Campbell. Um, I think what sometimes gets lost in that definition is the clause about beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, we, the state cannot just show any evidence of each element. They have to show substantial evidence, and that word has to be given some meaning. And in this case, the state did not meet that burden 
what they offered amounted to speculation. The state brief and their argument at trial essentially relied on Mr. Ambrise's presence. He was in the car, he was hanging around with other people who were doing the drug deal. And we know from our case law that mere presence isn't enough. The state also relied on um, propensity. There's some evidence that he was talking about doing other drug deals with these people and perhaps convincing the driver of the car to be involved in other drug deals with him in the future. So in, this, in, in ruling on a motion to dismiss for the sufficiency of the evidence, is it, is it necessary for a trial judge to only look at sort of you know, direct concrete evidence or cannot a trial judge look to the circumstantial evidence uh, as well and, and draw reasonable inferences in favor of the state from that circumstantial evidence? Yes, yes. The trial or the appellate court and the trial judge look at evidence as if it was true and they can draw reasonable inferences. But that still has to total up to substantial evidence that can convince a rational, that rational juror beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt. But you would agree, like, it, this is one area perhaps in, in criminal law where the law is perhaps a little more deferential to the state in terms of our standard of review in that, you know, if there, if there is, if there's a question, the motion to dismiss is denied and it goes to the jury. Would you agree well, with that? I would not agree with that because speculation is a question. I mean, I can, I can say the very thinnest scrap of evidence and someone can say, well, that's enough to raise a question. The question isn't enough. That's speculating. You can have theories, you know, maybe Mr. Andres was involved in this drug deal and he just never said anything out loud about it. Or maybe this or maybe that. That's speculation and our case law does not allow a conviction under that circumstance. Ms. Vandenberg, you're, you're the counsel of the state throughout his brief cites the Supreme Court's case in State versus Golder. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a 2020 case where the Supreme Court addressed this very issue on the sufficiency of the. Do you want to try to distinguish that case or do you want to ask why that case would not bind us here? I'd be glad to. I actually think State versus Glover um, helps Mr. Ombrees. Um, in Glover, it's a... No, this is Gold, Goldner. Oh, Goldner. G-O-L-D, or Goldner. Okay. Um, 2020. Can you tell me specifically what in Goldner you're looking at? Well, the, the Supreme Court said in evaluating the sufficiency of the evidence, the evidence must be considered like most favorable to the state. The state's entitled to every reasonable inference and um, every... In, every reasonable intent and every reasonable inference to be drawn therefrom. Right. So the, what I'm arguing about is what's a reasonable inference and what reasonable inference can get you to substantial evidence. Well, your clock's been, been tried three times. Correct. And on three times, the evidence went to the jury. Correct. And two out of three of those juries found there was not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, they found that they hung up, that they, it was a mistrial, correct? Correct. And the state chose to retry them. Correct. So, it's passed the test of sufficiency three times, correct? Well, I disagree with that. It's, it's passed the trial court's judgment about the sufficiency. 
Um, and if the test were if any jury has, could ever find this person guilty, then we'd never have appellate review of sufficiency, right? You just say, well, the jury found him guilty, so that it must be sufficient. That can't be the test, or there wouldn't be appellate review. What, what would you propose that we use then? If we are looking at what the trial court did or what the jury did. Well, it's de novo review on sufficiency claims. So you substitute your judgment for the trial court and then the test from Campbell. Is there substantial evidence that exists that a rational trial fact could have found the elements beyond a reasonable doubt? Not any evidence that might support speculative theories about maybe he did it, but actual evidence. And do you have a, a recent case where either this court or the Supreme Court has applied a stricter standard to the evidence than what Golder did? Um, I think Golder is the same standard as I just read from Campbell. It's just a different way of putting it. And the case that I wanted to talk about a second ago was um, Glover. And in that case, um, there's a guy charged with possession of heroin. It's found in his dresser in a house where he lives. It's not in his room, but out in the hall. But it was, it was agreed that that was his dresser. His housemate had a tin of heroin. He knew that she had a tin of heroin. He had used heroin with his housemate before. Um, what he didn't know was that the tin of heroin had been placed in his dresser. So I know it's not the exact same facts as we have here, but um, you have, excuse me, um, knowledge, right? If Mr. Ambrise has knowledge that there's a drug deal going on. The, the guy in uh, Glover also had knowledge that there was possession of heroin going on in his house. And what was missing was evidence to show that he and the other housemate had a common plan to actually possess it together. And this is an acting in concert theory. And in this case, Mr. Ambrise, even if he knew there was a drug deal going on, there has to be evidence that he took an action of some sort and that he had a common plan with um, the other people who were doing the drug deal. And I don't believe the state was able to put on that. But you would concede that a lot of times there isn't there isn't necessarily direct evidence of that common plan, right? There's not gonna be a written contract to, to commit the crime. A lot of times that has to be shown through this sort of circumstantial evidence. But the circumstantial evidence cannot just be mere presence. That's well-established case law. If but he, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just mere presence at some single scene of a crime. I mean, he was, he was in the restaurant, left the restaurant, got in the car, went to the warehouse, got back in the car, went back to the restaurant where the, the, the deal was ultimately he, sort he of consummated. present the whole time, absolutely. And mere presence is not enough. He has to have taken an act to further this drug deal in some way, and he has, there has to be evidence that he had a common plan. Is, is leaving the restaurant and getting in the car an act? I think that's presence. He's staying with the people he's with. And you could speculate, you know, I, we're talking about what's substantial or not. I mean, yes, he was there. You know, yes, he went around with them. And after the drugs were dropped off, they all went out shopping and they went out to eat together and hung around until, you know, such time as they thought the deal was gonna happen. And I contend that's during presence. Um, I'll move on to speed trial. <coughs> The court's well aware there are four factors for speed trial. 
the length of the delay, the reason for the delay, the assertion of the right, and prejudice. Um, the first thing this court might get caught on that we've argued in the briefs is how to count the length of delay when there's been a mistrial. Um, I have argued that you count the entire time, uh, five plus years. The state has argued you reset every time there's a mistrial. And I've got three um, reasons that my interpretation is correct. One is state versus Carvalho. Um, Judge Tyson may have something to tell us about that, but in that case, there were nine years that went by and there were mistrials. And in analyzing the trial, this court looked at the entire time as one. Um, the second thing there were four, four trials in that case, right? Uh, four first degree murder trials with two different victims. Yeah, complicated, right? And, and, and there were negotiations for plea arrangements, and also he also served an intermediate sentence for an unrelated crime for three years. Right. It, it was very complicated, a lot of different factors. Um, and I, I think just logically and as a matter of policy, that I, this is in the reply brief that it makes more sense to look at it as a one big long time and then look at the reason for the delay. Well, part of the reason was a trial happened and then we had to wait a little while and part of the reason was this or that. And that way you can look at really who's responsible for the delay. Um, Mr. Ombreed's certainly not responsible for the jury not agreeing on evidence and having to be retried. And the other thing that I didn't cite in the brief that I ran across Preparing for this argument, um, I did cite the case, but for a different proposition. It's um, a U.S. case, Betterman versus Montana. And that case was a federal trial, and the argument was after the person had been convicted, there was a long period of time before that person was sentenced. And they were trying to argue the defense was that that time between conviction and sentence should also be included in the speedy trial analysis. And the court said, no, that's not right. It's conviction that ends. And the language they use, I think, is instructive here. It says, a presumptively innocent person, until found guilty, right, should not languish under an unresolved charge. Um, they say the presumptively innocent um, are protected by the speedy trial clause from long enduring unresolved criminal charges. The Sixth Amendment does not extend, or speedy trial right does not extend beyond conviction, which terminates the presumption of um, innocence. So they're looking at the uncertainty, the unknowing, I still have these charges hanging over my head until there's been a conviction. Not until there's been the first witness sworn at trial or some other test. The, um, the third factor or the fourth factor is what actions the defendant took to seek the speedy trial, right. and if they were complicit in plea negotiations or delays, and how quickly they asserted that right. Do you want to speak to the third factor? Sure. Um, there were four speedy trial motions by counsel. There were two. Um, as it relates to this trial, the, as final, relates the final trial? Or well, there were four along the way. Um, and uh, Mr. Ombres himself wrote, um, filed his own pro se motion to start this speedy trial, and then later after the first trial wrote a letter, and this is at record page 40. Um, and I cited a little bit of this, but I just wanted to let you hear the whole thing. Over six months ago, he says to Judge Davis, um, I was finally given a trial which resulted in a hung jury. Two years prior to this trial, I had 
repeatedly informed Mr. Zellmer, who is his lawyer, I wanted to speak to trial to prove I'm innocent of the charges. Mr. Zellmer replied each time by stating I would have to wait on the DA. Since my trial over six months ago, I once again informed my attorney that I want a new trial. My family calls and tells my attorney that I want a new trial. He responds by saying there's nothing he can do. That, I have to wait on the DA. My family searched online and found that this is untrue. My attorney can file various motions with the court and speed up the process. So Mr. Humphrey, from the very beginning, wanted his trial, wanted his day in court. After he, um, after the jury hung, he wanted his trial again. He was ready to get out of jail. He sat there for five plus years. And that letter's not dated, is it? It is not dated. Um, there's some, there's a response to it from the court on October 31st. So I think I said in the brief that, you know, probably it was written in October of 2018. Um, this trial occurred, this last trial occurred when? Um, May of 2021. Was this letter in response to the latest trial or? No, this was, this was after the first missed trial. So this is, first trial was April 2018, and this is six months after that, and which he does say in here, six months ago. Um, so can you tell us what actions he may have taken after the second missed trial to assert the speedy trial right? Well, his lawyer filed a third motion and a fourth motion. Um, and, and, you know, COVID came along in the middle of that, and we can talk about that, but I, I, I don't see how the assertion factor can weigh against him, and I, in fact, I think the state conceded that it does. Well, you made that statement in your brief, but I, I wanted the timelines, because right. I didn't know how many of those were asserted in right. actions as opposed to what he had done, and then how quickly the, the state responded right. on this trial. That, that was the reason for my question. Sure. And there's a, at the end of the brief, there's a timeline, too, I think, that has all of that set out at any point in history. Um, so we talked about the length of delay and the assertion of the right. The reason for delay, um, I contend, also weighs in Mr. Humphreys' favor. Um, the prosecutor, you know, every time they had one of these hearings, he would talk about um, you know, there were four co-defendants, and it was really hard, and I wanted to, you know, do it in my certain order in order to, you know, make this work the best for me. Those, those are not fair reasons to Mr. Ambrise. It's not, it, you know, you don't have to try one person at a time. You can try them all, you know, back to back. And it's not Mr. Ambrise's fault that he was chosen to go last. That was a, a conscious, intentional choice by the prosecutor, presumably for his own reasons. Um, he also, the prosecutor, continued to talk about plea offers. Um, you know, before, let's see, Mr. Ambrys was arrested in 2016, and by summer of 2017, so it's a year, almost a year and a half, um, they have a status hearing or something, and they talk about a plea offer, and Mr. Ambrys says, I don't want to plea, I want to go to trial. This is early on. And the state says, okay, I hear you, we're gonna set this for trial next month or in October of 2017. And that time just goes by and there's never an explanation. Why, why aren't we at trial? And then in November he comes back and says, well, I made a better plea offer and I'm gonna put it on the record why there's not been, you know, why he doesn't wanna take it or you know, for whatever his reasons are and still hasn't prepared for trial. And Mr. Armory says, again, I'm not interested in plea. And then more months go by, and the prosecutor still hasn't 
you know, calendar the case, calendar the case. And, uh, you know, I've often read transcripts where the trial is happening, and right at the outset, the prosecutor will say, well, I want to put on the record that this plea deal is being turned down. And they do that. And then they go ahead and have the trial. There's no, he doesn't give a reason why he kept putting it off. And I think you can infer that he didn't want to try this case because it was not a good case. He said that a couple of times in, in a couple of these hearings. You know, I, I recognize that the evidence is not, you know, as strong against Mr. Ambrose as some of the other people. And the fact that he continues to use the plea bargaining as an excuse when Mr. Ambrose has very clearly said he's not interested weighs heavily against the state. It's certainly not um, Mr. Ambrose slowing things down. You know, there are cases where there's plea negotiation on both sides, and the defendant says, oh, you know, give us a little more time, I think we can work something out. That is not this case. Um, and then the third thing that happens is, yeah, so those are two choices by the prosecutor. What order to try the cases and putting it on the calendar. And the third thing that happens to delay is um, preparation of the transcript after the mistrial. And that is um, not Mr. Umbrus's responsibility. That's the state's responsibility. And if it takes eight months to get a couple of pages of testimony transcribed, that is on North Carolina. You know, if, if the court reporters are too busy, someone should find them so that they can get that done. Your timeline says that there was a speedy, there was a motion to dismiss an alternative for a speedy trial on January of 2021. And the hearing was held the following month, February the 11th. And the trial was originally set for March 15th, but then it was actually held in May. And is, there, is there any explanation for that, that continuing? Yeah, the defense counsel had some kind of a medical issue. So when the trial was finally called, they, they mentioned that. Again, not the state's fault, but also not Mr. Ambrose's fault that his lawyer, I don't know what it was. I mean, obviously if he was sick, he couldn't do the trial. But at best, that's a neutral factor. You would, you, would, you would agree that would not weigh against either party. That's just a, a factor yeah. that two months, additional months would not count. Right, right. And I think, I think the, the best point um, to look at, that Mr. Ambrose had the strongest case at that February 2021 hearing. He'd been, in, he'd been in prison the longest amount of time, the state had delayed the longest amount of time. Um, and that, at that hearing, the trial court didn't make any findings as well. And it, you know, in terms of remedy, it's a little tricky because there are four separate hearings. There's only one where any findings were made, and that was the third one. So is that moved because of the fourth one? You know, can you remand for findings from the very first hearing? That I, well, that was going to be my question because when yeah. you contrast, you know, the, the the last order with you know with Judge Morgan's um, order from 2019, which which is pretty, you know, full of findings and explanations and weighing the weighing the factors versus the very summary order. Um, I so I, I guess I do sort of have a question as to to remedy. You know, is, is, is this, is there a need to, re to remand this for findings of fact and? Right, so my position is there's plenty in the record that you have before you to show what the state's reasons were, to show the timeline, you know, you've got all the motions that have been filed and you've got transcript hearings from each of the speedy trial hearings. And I think there's plenty there. Um, 
I disagree with the, you know, I can go through the, the facts and the conclusions from the third um, iteration of the speedy trial motion, but, you know, it's, it's in the brief. I just disagree with the, the findings, basically. I think they're supported. It's sort of thinking about this, this you know, sort of assuming without deciding we were we were to kind of take these things seriatim and not look at the whole piece you know would you would you argue that there is uh, in even looking at the last motion were we to look at that sort of on its own following the the, the last mistrial um, is is there room within those factors to consider the prior delays and, and the prior mistrials as well? Uh, even if we weren't, if we didn't calculate the full length of time based on that, would that not be a, a consideration in, in looking at the speedy trial analysis, even in, even in that last order? I hope so. I mean, Mr. Ambris was in jail that whole time. You know, his, his you can't erase those prior years where he sat there um, waiting. And trying to he was in jail for nine years. But, and the U.S. Supreme Court said no speedy trial violation. Right. It went all the way up. Right. And there, I mean, every case is different, right? Every case has different factors. I know in um, Carvalho, the, the reason for delay was very different. And there were things that were attributable to him um, and other complications. That's, that's not true in this case. There was a motion filed in September of 2020 where your client's counsel had asked for the continuance, correct? Well, if you look at the transcript of that hearing, he was asking for a bond. He was trying to get Mr. Ombres released because uh, it's in the record, you know, that he's got federal a sentence that he has to go serve after which he'll probably be deported. Um, he could have served that twice by now, you know, but, but he can't start until he's finished in North Carolina. So that's one of the prejudice factors. But it, that hearing was supposed to be about bond and trying to get, um, allowing Mr. Ombres to go do his federal time while we're waiting around for this plea transfer or whatever they were waiting for. And then they started talking about this co-defendant's MAR and it got very complicated. And then the judge said, let's go in chambers. And they did, and that's all off the record. And then they come back and say, well, we're just gonna kind of table all of this. And then in his written findings, he said, defense counsel agreed to a continuance, and I think that's not exactly well, no, how you know, I was Here's what it said. It says, defense makes a motion to continue if the state's not opposed. Yeah. That's and what that, the order says. Well, that's what the order says. And I, if you read the transcript, that's not what happened. Unless, I don't know what happened in chambers. And, and the other thing I'd say is Mr. Ombres definitely was not agreeing with that. Even if his lawyer went into chambers and did a, a yeah, I don't know what but the proper way to attack that would be through a, a motion for ineffective assistance of counsel and not through a sufficiency motion, correct? Well, sufficiency motion, speedy trial motion. I mean, I, there's some language in, in some of the U.S. cases talking about um, the difference between a defendant and what his lawyer does. And I would say, especially for a court-appointed lawyer, you know, what's Mr. Henry supposed to do? You know, if he tries to fire his lawyer, that counts against him in the speedy trial analysis because you have to start all over again. I think he's happy with his lawyer. I mean, he got the jury hung twice. He just wanted his trial, and he didn't get it for five plus years. Okay. Um, I'm going to save the rest of my right. time. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you were in the middle of questions there when you are done, so I'll, I'll give you a little leeway on that. Okay. Thank you. Great. Right. 
Judge, and may it please the court. My name is Caden Hayes, I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I am representing the state in this matter. Your Honor, as you've heard, as you've read in the briefs, there are two issues at play here. The sufficiency of the evidence under uh, supporting the jury's guilty verdict, and whether or not the state violated the defendant's speedy trial rights. I want to briefly touch on sufficiency, because that seems to be the bulk of the discussion seems to be about speedy trial. But I think it's important that we analyze the context and the facts preceding, or um, more specifically the evidence uh, at play here. We have a CI who gets information about a large interstate drug operation. He negotiates with uh, the, this operation and also uh, relays back this information to his handler. And a meet is set up on February 6th. They put the money in the bag. The, one of the members of the operation, I think his nickname is Paco, comes in, looks at it, seemingly happy, makes a call, and then says, driver's in Alabama, We'll reconvene at another time. That same night, the defendant gets a text from a different member of this organization saying he's in Alabama. And the defendant responds, it's okay, coach. The next morning, now the defendant's there, along with Paco, this individual named Reyes, who's the one who texted, who's the one who's also involved here. They walk out of the La Fiesta looking for somebody to arrive. The driver arrives with over 20,000 units of meth, individual doses of meth, in his trunk. The defendant and Reyes get in the car, and they drive off in tandem to the storage unit. In the car, the defendant tries to convince the driver to work for him instead, citing better connections, a truck that has better smuggling equipment within it. And we get to the storage unit. Reyes asks the defendant to move the meth. And while it's unclear if he did try the handle, we know the trauma lock was on, and it was a reasonable inference that he did, and that's how they figured it out. The defendant, in a lot of their arguments today, and in their briefs, said that he's just a passive bystander. He didn't make an action. Well, that is an action. Attempting to get out of the car to move methamphetamine from the trunk to the garage. And then they drive off to a nearby gas station. The driver leaves and goes to a Home Depot with his son. Everyone else goes to a restaurant, has lunch, and they wait for the money to arrive. When it does arrive, the defendant, with everybody else, except for the driver who's still at Home Depot, comes back where he is arrested. Which brings us now to this question of sufficiency. And certainly this is a circumstantial case. As, as Judge Hansen pointed out, very rarely do we have like direct evidence of a contract or something other crazy like that. We have text messages that corroborate with what a different member of this conspiracy said to others about a driver being in Alabama. We then have the next morning of him arriving jumping in the car with the drugs, the driver, and a member of this operation. He is asked to move the methamphetamine from the trunk to the storage unit. And then he leaves and then comes back with everybody to collect the money. At some point, we have to say this is sufficient evidence as there's all of this, these steps that he is taking to be along this kind of um, drug transaction. So it, it strikes me that the, 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 there's, there's not so much a factual dispute in this case, but rather it's sort of the, the, the standard that we need to apply um, to those facts. And you know, in terms of what constitutes sufficient evidence to survive a motion to dismiss, um, 
you know, I guess in between there, there's sort of the line between what, where, where's, where do we draw the line between uh, an inference that may be reasonably drawn from the evidence and, and a speculative theory of what that evidence may show? And what, how would the state articulate the standard to apply on that? Well, Your Honor, reasonable would be a just kind of common sense of reasonable. What is the next logical step? I will use the child bomb example. It's very unlikely that they just remembered in the midst of a massive drug deal, oh, right, I got my child bomb on. It makes more sense that he tried the handle and it didn't open rather than him coming to terms with this driver. And so something like that would be a reasonable inference, whereas, um, uh, I don't know, if he said uh, the child lock was on, and, um, I'm struggling to come up with a very speculative theory, but there are in that idea of wholly not based on the evidence, doesn't make sense from a common sense perspective, and then we're moving beyond kind of reasonableness, and we're now into speculation. You know, if, if, for example, let's say, uh, Ray's had not instructed the defendant to get out of the car and move the map, well, and maybe it's a little more speculative, because we don't know if he tried, he had no reason to try that door handle, because he wasn't as far as we knew getting out. But that's not the case here. We have Ray's instructing the defendant to get out of the car, move the methamphetamine. And so, we have all of these layers of circumstantial evidence all kind of combined together to make this idea that the defendant was in conspiracy with the other members here, and he was, by that same evidence, controlling the drugs constructively and also enacting consular theories, as kind of laid out in the briefs. And this circumstantial evidence is um, wholly appropriate. We can look at State v. Howell as kind of that idea, and also State v. Lawrence talks about how there are innocent acts that may seem innocent individually, whereas I think the, the heroin stand that we were talking about earlier, those all kind of seem a little more innocent and very little acts. But when taken together, it's a bigger deal, which is what we have here, which maybe we didn't have. Uh, I believe it was, uh, it was Glover. So, in short, the state presented sufficient evidence to convince the jury that there, the defendant was involved in this drug deal and he possessed uh, the drugs in question. So, sufficiency out of the way, I now want to talk more about the speedy trial process. Let me ask you this what else could the defendant have done that he didn't do? Uh, in terms of sufficiency? No, no, all speedy trial. Well, Your Honor, he presented this, but I think the most important thing, which I'll, I'll get to is um, prejudice and also as reason for delay, he never presented any evidence at any of these hearings. He just proffered statements that aren't proper evidence before the court. No one was called. He didn't even certify the motions themselves. So the court was left with nothing other than this delay, which there are case law from our Supreme Court that says longer delays are not enough by themselves to win a speedy trial motion. And so, with this in mind, we can kind of look at this first of the four Barker standards of factors. Well, I, I, you would, I, I mean, there, there, there are problematic issues with having a, a criminal defendant testify during pretrial motions, are, are, are there well, not? certainly there are, but there are other ways that the defendant could have said something. He, he could have um, talked about how his defense was hampered or how the state had done anything um, to be willfully misconduct. I mean, even he could have said uh, that I will never want a plea negotiation, will never want a plea offer. All we have is this one undated letter that, frankly, the court shouldn't be considering because it was a pro se letter when he was represented by counsel. And so there were a lot of things that the defendant could have done. But by and large, that question presumes that he has violated, or the state violated his speech rights, which the state hasn't. In fact, he was granted three trials over the course of three years once you, and so, we can now, this, this brings up that kind of first issue of when does the speedy trial, or does it at all restart? And I want to, on the outset, note that the defendant in their opening brief only addresses that a footnote citing Carl Howell, which didn't strictly discuss the issue as, as the state's brief discusses. And so 
the state positions defense waived argument on this issue. But putting that aside, moving on to the actual substance, the absolute can, the bottom level can of statutory interpretation, which is what this is, is common sense. What the words mean as they are, not what they should mean or what we want them to mean. The right to a speedy trial is just that. You have a right to a speedy trial, not a speedy adjudication, not a speedy final disposition. The state has control over the jury, or the trial calendar, but the state has absolutely no control over the votes themselves. And so it makes sense, applying that common sense interpretation of the language, to just restart with every mistrial. Now, the defendant in the- But fundamentally, you know, we, we have these rights, these speedy trial rights, double jeopardy rights. They all sort of stem, right, from uh, uh, defending a criminal defendant, uh, you know, against the overwhelming power of the state, right? I mean, that's, the, the, it all stems from, you know, the English practice of, of you know, keeping defendants kind of hanging, hanging around until you could find, you know, a more favorable jury. So why, surely at some point, the, the length of time, the number of mistrials, and there, and there were not insignificant gaps between each individual trial here. Like, surely at some point it has to amount to a speedy trial violation. Well, maybe, Your Honor, but that didn't happen here. I think, yes, there were some gaps in between the individual, but as we kind of discussed, I'll get into the second problem. There were, one, valid reasons for that. There was the jury transcript that the defendant requested that took eight months to produce, and then they got it around Christmas time, and then they asked for a continuance for two months. And so, reality is the state only delayed the case by a couple months once you take out that between the first and second trial, and between the second and third, we had COVID, and we had so many other issues stem up during that that were fully addressed in the hearings and the discussions of the trial court. And so, the state's desire to try him with co-defendants, how should we look at that in terms of any delay that caused? Well, the state is given its prerogative in order to decide how it wants to proceed with cases. There's a state, for, uh, there's a case from the our Supreme Court called State v. Cherry, which talks about how uh, there is, uh, there may be selectivity in prosecutions, but the exercise of this prosecutorial prerogative does not reach constitutional proportion unless there's some showing that there's some um, unjust, uh, that was deliberately based on unjustifiable standard, race, religion, or some other arbitrary metric. So there's a motion to join for trial and then a motion for separate trials is denied. Is the defendant then barred from asserting a separate speedy trial by virtue of the joint being ruled on? Well, the defendant's allowed to assert a speedy trial rights whenever he wants. Whether or not they've been actually violated is a different question. The joint motion was there. The How long was too much? For a speedy trial? Mm -hmm. I think the hallmark of speedy trial litigation is there is no magic number. Uh, certainly, as the defendant points out in their reply brief, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case called State v. Doggett where it was almost nine years, but as you point out with Carl Howe, that was also around nine years. And so there are very different, there's no magic number. We, we, do we have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is that, that we do have some case law in North Carolina that does talk sort of about a prima facie speedy trial number. Yeah, yeah, so the most recent being State v. Spinks, which I think Chief Judge Stroud after. Um, that, yes, it said, I think 31 months was the, the shortest month it, it highlighted. Two things on that. One, there is no point in this litigation where 30 months elapsed, 31 months elapsed between indictment to first trial, first trial, second, second, third. Is a prejudice presumed after a year in some of the cases? 
Yes, Your Honor, but prejudice presumed that language is a bit of a misnomer. It's in the sense, it's a different analysis than saying the fourth, the prejudice prong of Barker. All we're saying when we say the prejudice presumed in that context is just that we continue the analysis. Wouldn't that shift the burden to the state to explain the reason for delay? Well, Your Honor, I would disagree. There is the... If you have a presumption, then doesn't that shift burdens? Well, Your Honor, I think that's a bit of a misnomer by the U.S. Supreme Court. They have been clear, and our Supreme Court... They may be wrong, but they're still the Supreme Court. Certainly. You can tell them that. I would say in the sense of they say prejudice in that way, but they've consistently held that that is just the threshold analysis, that we can start talking about Barker as much as it is presumptively prejudicial. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say that the defendant comes and says, I've been in prison, I've been in jail for a year, and I want a trial, I'll have it. What happens then if the state says, too bad? What does the judge do? Well, Your Honor, we get back to that kind of state v. cherry of the prosecution. The state's allowed some discretion to be able to decide how it decides its cases and which cases it puts on first. And until we show some sort of more, I lack a better term, evil or incorrect way to approach that, that the state has done, we haven't had a speedy trial violation. Certainly when it comes to cases like this, where we have multiple states, the federal government is having to do analysis, and there's multiple defendants, a year is not nearly enough to really fully encapsulate all of that, given the state's resources and the judicial's resources. And so taking us back to kind of this first problem, it is important, I think, that we reset the timer with every hung jury. And I want to briefly address the parade of horribles the defendant puts in the reply brief, that there's all sorts of reasons that a mistrial could occur. It starts out something, some sort of discomfort by either counsel. That is a little different, because a hung jury is quite literally the last part of the trial. The speedy trial is important for a defendant to show, potentially prove their innocence. It is not, so when you have a hung jury, that's what they've done. The defendant has had his entire case presented, and the jury decided they can't decide. When we move on, it makes sense. Maybe if there was some prosecutorial misconduct, certainly then, maybe we don't reset the timer. But for hung juries, we should reset the timer. And that logically makes sense, following the kind of language of the speedy trial constitutional vision. And so- Let me ask you a question, actually, when you said that. That reminded me of something I had noted in the brief. It said that the right to speedy trial works to ensure an accused can receive his day in court and perhaps prove his innocence. I didn't know the defendants had to prove their innocence. I thought it was the other way around. Well, certainly, Your Honor, I guess I could have probably honed that in a little bit better. In the sense of the defendant can put forward evidence rebutting the state's case. In the sense of we want to make sure that the state can't just hold somebody forever and ever without a trial. There's so many constitutional protections, as Judge Hanson was pointing out, to ensure that doesn't happen. Speedy trial is just one of them. So if we, you know, as far as looking at reasons for the delay, obviously, in this case, we have trials, we have mistrials. And the reasons for the mistrials were certainly not anything that were just outside of- It was not like a witness or a juror got sick or things that we could just say stuff happens and, you know, nobody had any control over it. There were hung juries, which is, you know, the evidence is not the strongest evidence, okay, in this case, probably, that anyone has ever seen without commenting on the sufficiency issue, right? Certainly, there are stronger cases. Yeah. 
you know, how, how should that weigh into it, the fact that the state tried twice to convince a jury and, um, and, and didn't really change the evidence or, or how the case was approached, apparently, uh, in each of the trials, uh, and then finally managed to get a jury to go along with the uh, guilty verdict? Well, I, remember, I take two points to that. The first thing being, there are hundreds of reasons that a jury might just one member votes to acquit. And they could range the gambit from completely logical to I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And that's just part of our process. And so uh, because there are two jurors, I don't think that weighs at all into discussing the sufficiency or how strong the evidence in the state's case was. And so, and then two, the state here, there, this is a pretty large drug deal. I mean, How many bites of the apple does the state get? I don't think there's a magic number, Your Honor, but there's certainly uh, realistic reasons. It's very expensive to try cases, as I'm sure all of us are aware. And so the state has to make that decision through its elected DA to decide how it's going to spend its resources, how is it going to prosecute people. And presuming it doesn't run afoul of these kind of the cherry uh, discussion about race or uh, discriminating any of those other uh, bad standards, they haven't violated that. This case here was 20,000 doses of methamphetamine being trafficked into North Carolina to go onto its streets. This is a huge drug deal that the state wanted to secure a conviction for on all to make sure that they were, those who were involved with it were punished accordingly. And so they did retry it three times, a total of three times. And that was the state's prerogative. And the defendant produced no evidence to say that the state wrongly made that decision, that it relied upon some bad metric to do that. So if we look at these cases, if, we, if we're supposed to look at these motions kind of individually based on each mistrial and the clock starts, uh, should we as a reviewing court then look at each one of these motions and determine whether at any point in time along this way there was a speedy trial violation? You know, if, if your argument is, well, you know, you, you can only... You know, the, the clock starts again on mistrial. Well, what about the 24 months leading up to the mistrial? What about, you know, the 16 or 17 months in between there? What about, you know, uh, so should we should we take us undertake an indiv independent individual review of each of the mistrial motions, or is it the state's contention we only look at the last one? Well, Your Honor, uh, I think in the brief I talked about how this, uh, or I guess they probably didn't make this clearly, um, this court's job here is not to necessarily strictly say the defendant's speedy trial rights at some point over this course of five years of litigation was violated. It is, did the trial court correctly deny his various speedy trial motions? And so we're sitting here and saying, okay, did speedy trial motion number one, which is 24 months or so after the indictment, was his speedy trial rights violated? Okay, no, it's not, let's move on. And so it is four separate motions that this court is reviewing. And because of that reset timer, it's not this aggregating factor. So it is looking at it afresh with every trial. Okay, did the defendant get violent? Did he not get the speedy trial rights? And then um, looking at the last order, looking at the, the February 2021 order, um, can you articulate to me how the trial court in that case weighed the various factors in making its decision? Well, Your Honor, it, I think it, believed, it, it referenced the relevant case law. But again, this goes back to the defendant didn't present any evidence. He just, he just merely stated the proper of these facts unsupported by any substantial part evidence. So the trial court didn't really need to go through this kind of in-depth findings of fact, because there were no disputes of facts. It was, there was a delay between his indictment. They certainly had the information about what his previous trials were, but we don't need, they didn't present any evidence to conflict um, with that kind of information. So there was no specific needing of the, the kind of granular findings of fact the trial court said they weighed the various factors and, and we have to take them at their word with them. And so 
and this kind of gets into my, my second, the second uh, Barker prong of reasons for delay. Uh, our Supreme Court in Spindy was very clear that it is the defendant's responsibility to first make a showing that the state either negligently or willfully delayed the case, and then it's the state's burden to rebut that with some, uh, with various uh, discussion. Now, I think Chief Judge Stroud, you mentioned reference uh, this kind of uh, case law about how there is kind of this presumption per se, but that runs afoul of this kind of um, Spinks analysis, or sorry, Spivy analysis, um, because in that case, it was four and a half years, and our Supreme Court said he relied on time alone as justification for speedy trial violation, and the defendant didn't meet his burden on the second prompt. So there can't both be this, our Supreme Court saying, defendant didn't meet his prima facie burden, and then this court saying, lesser, I think 31 months is the one I was looking at, does kind of make this presumption. And so I don't think, I, I don't think that uh, Spinks is necessarily saying that. I think Spivy overrules that to the extent that it does. And so we have here no evidence. State didn't need to offer any evidence to rebut the non-existence of evidence, and the trial court probably denied. So um, we skipped it. So we're now at the kind of third prong, Barker, and uh, it is in the brief, but I, I do kind of concede that he did reference it four times over the course of litigation. So I'll only dwell on that briefly. And so we arrive now at prejudice. Now, the US Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, have also three reasons that we want the speech. There is uh, to prevent kind of the incarceration in general, risk of incarceration, to minimize anxiety over a pending charge, kind of the sort of Damocles idea. And then there is the most important impairment of a defense. I did not see any cases where the defendant had, did not make a showing of impairment and yet still won the speedy trial, save Doggett, which was this kind of insane, unique example that doesn't really apply to this case. In Doggett, the defendant was indicted eight and a half years before his eventual arrest and adjudication. He, and in those eight and a half years, he left the country, came back, got married, I think he had kids, bought a house, got a job, and then some random check, they discovered, oh, actually, you have a pending indictment that's nine years old. And the Supreme Court discussed this and said, you know, we have to just presume that over those nine years where no one knew about this, somebody forgot something out of importance. But that's not the case here. We have three different trials where the witnesses are getting refreshed, their memories are remembering it in each one of them, and the state is making sure to keep its evidence safe. So there is no evidence that the defense uh, defense was impaired, and he didn't, again, present any evidence to support that. And only relying upon this idea that if it was long enough, then it's just presumed, but we haven't met that. We're nowhere near eight and a half years, and we're certainly not near the unique circumstances of dog. And so, taking a step back, looking at all of these factors, we've got three of them are, are leaning uh, in favor of the state, or, and only one of them is in favor of the defendant. And that is not enough to win on speech on motion. And so, Your Honor, unless any of you have any further questions, I ask this court to affirm the judgment below. Thank you. All right, thank you. Anyone who is waiting, that's the whole point of the trial, is you should be waiting 
And if you're in jail while you're waiting, that makes the prejudice even worse. Um, that inherent prejudice doesn't go away. It just gets worse as time goes on, right? And then there's the third uh, way that someone can show prejudice, which is something happened to their defense that maybe they could have defended against it and then a witness dies or something along those lines. That does not have to be shown. In fact, prejudice doesn't have to be shown, right? The, the, going way back to Barker, there are four factors, none is necessary or sufficient, right? That's the standard language. Um, Do you think of incarcerate uh, or lack of a trial after one year is presumptively prejudicial to shift the burden? That does shift the burden, is my understanding. Um, and that's the case law say, approaching a year. And, and you know, we can say, oh, two months in jail, oh, a year in jail, what's the big deal? Well, that's a big deal. I don't want to go to jail for one night. You know, just because Mr. Ambrose is a drug dealer doesn't mean it's okay for him to sit in jail for two extra months. That's a lot of days away from his family. And you, five years. When you look at the incarceration in relation to bond or the lack of bond, and I know there were federal charges involved here and also an immigration status as well, all of those things. Mm -hmm. You want to speak to that? Well, uh, that was the reason he could get out on bond. I mean, he could have gotten out on bond and he would have been rearrested. And that is a fact. That doesn't stop the fact that he was in jail because of these charges, right? And there's, there's a case in the brief somewhere that says, just even if you're incarcerated, doing other time, you still have a right to speedy trial. That doesn't take it away at all. Um, and I wanted to get to Farmer, which is our North Carolina Supreme Court case that came down recently, and the prejudice analysis there. Um, the factors there were all applied, and the, the balance is very different than it is here because there's a different, um, I think it was the assertion of right factor in Farmer that didn't exist at all. Um, but I believe that the Supreme, our Supreme Court's analysis uh, took a wrong turn because they talked about the inherent prejudice um, existing with anyone who's stuck in jail, and then they said, but he didn't prove that there's something wrong with his, that his defense was hampered, and therefore this factor weighs negatively against the defendant. And I think that is clearly contrary to U.S. Supreme Court law, which back to Barker says, there's inherent prejudice for anyone who's the, who is in jail. So I want to caution this court about, you know, the Supreme Court gets to say North Carolina law, but the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, tells you how to weigh the prejudice. And in addition to the inherent prejudice, Mr. Umbreeze um, had this other federal charge that he could have been serving, and that was raised in the third and fourth speaking trial motions before the court. Um, I wanted to ask if there is a remand um, for further findings. Um, one other concern about that is that it's going to go back and sit around Guilford County for a long time. So if the court is thinking about that, it would be great to have some sort of time limit on that. Um, Mr. Ombrees would certainly appreciate that. Um, I want to talk about this being a complex case. That was another reason that I forgot to talk about it. The reply brief said there were three days of testimony. There were nine or 10 witnesses. And even if it was complex before the first one, they did the, almost the same trial the second and third times. And there was no reason for that to cause delay. Um, there are no other questions. I would ask that you vacate Mr. Ambrose's convictions either on sufficiency of evidence or a speedy trial violation. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much to both of you for your arguments. And uh, we are going to take a brief recess now to switch panels. And so you get one more Campbell judge by coming in. Stand in recess for five minutes.